Mitzvah Bet, which is verses 3 through 6, quote, You are to have no other gods before me. You are not to make for yourselves a carved image of any kind of representation of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the water below the shoreline. You are not to bow down to them nor serve them, for I, Adonai, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but displaying grace to the thousandth generation of those who love me and obey my mitzvot. End quote. Now, this verse, or these, this section, these verses, seem to continue the authority established in Mitzvah Aleph. Um, that is to say, as their only true God, uh, Yahweh, Hashem, the people were expressly forbidden to allow another god, small g-o-d, to occupy the central place in their lives. For indeed, such a replacement was identified as idolatry. Now, we all know that this idolatry could take the form of another god, another small g-o-d, because really there are no other gods, but another supposed god, uh, spiritually, or it could take literal form itself, as the verses seem to prohibit making any man-made form or likeness of the creation of Hashem uh, used for the express purpose of adoration or worship. These were to be counted as um, idolatry, and any objects that were brought into such worship were counted as idols and thus forbidden. God did not want us making three-dimensional representations of the things that we um, see around us in uh, for the express purpose of bringing those into um, worship of God. Such disobedience warranted the punishment of Hashem even down to the children of the parents committing the idolatrous act, is what he says. I will... Um, Punish the children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Um, however, this was not considered judgment. Punishment and judgment, two different words. Um, the point I'm trying to bring out is that um, we must not be careful. I'm sorry, we must be careful not to confuse the two. God visits the iniquity of the sins of the fathers down to the children. The punishment uh, is meted out all the way down to that level. But it's punishment, not judgment. Um, Hashem is interested in restoration, which is why he uses such uh, extreme measures when dealing with his own. We all know this to be true if you have parents. Um, sorry, you parents if you have children. You punish your children for the sake of reproving them, correcting them, um, changing the, the course of their actions, um, changing the attitude of the child from one of rebellion towards one of, of um, compliance. And so the punishment that you give to your children is you know the spankings that you meet out to your children it's not meant to uh tear them down it's quite the opposite it's meant to build them up you parents are always fond of saying this just before you spank your children you say now johnny this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me well if that's the case then spank yourself no i'm just joking um at least that's what the Johnny might be thinking. Then, then turn the belt on yourself. But what's really taking place is that it hurts the chi- uh, the parent to have to correct the child, but the parent knows that it is absolutely vital for the proper development of the child to correct him when he uh, when the child steps out in error. And that's what's happening right here. God is stepping out and correcting his children. It's not judgment. Judgment is reserved for those who are not um, in covenant with God. And ultimately, judgment is reserved for the wicked who have, who have defied God despite his loving attempts to bring them into uh, the family. So that's why we read um, that Hashem uh, visits the iniquity to the third and fourth generation, yet graciously grants his favor to the thousandth generation of those whose hearts remain pure. We can see that mercy wins out over judgment. Let's move on.
Um, mitzvah Gimel, which is um, the fourth commandment, um, which is found in chapter... I'm sorry, uh, the third commandment, not the fourth one. Mitzvah Gimel is the third commandment, which is found in verse 7. Quote, You are not to use lightly the name of Adonai your God, because Adonai will not leave unpunished someone who uses his name lightly. End quote. Um, the Hebrew word translated as lightly in that verse, where it says you're not to use the name lightly, is shav. And it comes from a root word meaning desolate, empty, false, or worthless. Upon examination of the word itself, we can deduce that it is not referring to what we call in modern language as swearing or cussing. God is not forbidding cussing, although that might be an application by today's standards that doesn't seem to be what it originally referred to. Rather, the understanding is that the holy name of Hashem is to be used with all of the reverence and respect that it is due. For, as it has remained fundamentally true in Judaism down to this day, the name of an individual is not just a title, but is in fact an embodiment of the character of the individual. And how much more so would this be true of God? So, um, for instance, if I mock my brother's name, well, then I am really degrading, or de- de- um, I'm I'm bringing down low in my own eyes the character of my brother, not just his name, the moniker, the thing uh, by which he is referred, but rather I am in Hebrew thought, um, I'm lashing out at the very character of my brother himself, and so to make this application. Um, over on God's side, we would say that to make God's name desolate, God forbid, or empty, God forbid, is an affront on God himself, God forbid. Okay? Pretty simple. Let's move on. Mitzvah Dalit, or the fourth commandment, which is um, captured for us in verses 8 through 11. Quote, remember the Sabbath day, or remember the day Shabbat, actually, to set it apart for God. You have six days to labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat for Adonai your God. On it, you are not to do any kind of work, not you, nor your, uh, not you, your son or your daughter, not your male or female slave, not your livestock, and not the foreigner staying with you inside the gates to your property. For in six days Adonai made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. This is why Adonai blessed the day Shabbat and separated it for himself. End quote. The Sabbath. This particular mitzvah has created innumerable um, debates between the Jews and the Christians down to this very day. Do we keep the seventh day Sabbath or do we embrace as Christians a new eighth day or a first day Sunday worship? Well, <clears throat> I don't want to get into it here in my commentary, but suffice to say that it is impossible to overemphasize this particular mitzvah. The seventh day rest that is um, given to us here in the text shares many different functions within the Torah. And that's why I don't want to get into it because it's its own study. In fact, I've got a commentary on the website um, called um, The Sabbath. And you can go back and read that if you want a, um, a more detailed uh, study on the topic. As such, however, here the Sabbath carries with it many fundamental truths that are beyond the scope of our current study. However, um, I do believe that Hashem is emphasizing the role of himself right now as the creator of the world, and that is why we, are, we the creator, are supposed to memorialize the Sabbath, um, starting here, or as is, as is explained for us here in the text. Using the Shabbat as the signature of his creative genius, we recognize that he and he alone 
um, has the power to bring the world into existence. Because Hashem ceased his labor, however, on the seventh day, his creation was to imitate him and also cease from their labors on the weekly Sabbath. It's really quite simple. The greatest form of flattery is imitation, and because God ceased from his work, we also cease from our physical labor. However, there is a spiritual truth behind the picture. Spiritually, this speaks to our position as sons and daughters in Messiah. How so? Well, <clears throat> before we came to be sons and daughters, we labored, as it were, to become acceptable in the sight of the Lord. How did we labor? We presented our own righteousness to God in hopes of acceptance um, before we understood that it was only the righteousness of Messiah that would cause us to become uh, acceptable in God's sight. And when I say we presented our own, in other religions and in many different forms, this takes the um, shape of legalism, where it's uh, so many works or so many deeds or so many creeds. Uh, in Judaism, however, down through the ages, it became their identity itself. Judaism, by the first century, had developed a theology that taught that all Israel and only Israel was um, candidate for God's righteousness or God's salvation. And as such, merely being Jewish alone warranted um, uh, salvation. And so the, the Jews of the first century were not necessarily doing the Torah to become righteous or to become saved in as much as they were simply putting forth their identity as Jews and believing that God would accept that identity um, uh, enough and to become righteous. Either way, it amounts to something other than what Messiah has done. For if, for if we suppose that Jewish identity alone equals salvation, <clears throat> then there's no need for the uh, death of and resurrection of a Messiah. Wouldn't you agree? And so we know that um, it is only in Messiah that we can become sons and daughters. So it is that working towards being accepted by God. The word, the word working there needs to be understood as anything that's um, offered up to God outside of God's chosen method of righteousness, which of course is Messiah. However, once we placed, once we surrendered and placed our trusting faithfulness in Messiah, Yeshua's atonement, we ceased to labor. We rest in the finished work that he freely accomplished on our behalf. We stop working towards the goal of becoming righteous in God's sight. Um, so Jew or Gentile both find righteousness the same way. That is to say, in the Messiah's atoning death. Amen. Let's move on. Mitzvah he, which is um, commandment number five, um, spanning verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 12. Quote, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land which Adonai your God is giving you. End quote. This is the first mitzvah that carries a promise along with it. Notice that? Honor your father and mother's mother so that there's a um a, um a reward placed on the end of this. Of course, the apostolic scriptures um uh make note of this as well. While it's not made apparent here why honoring our parents, the mitzvah, um literally speaks to those directly involved in the covenant, by the way, it's not apparent why um honoring our parents would somehow grant us a long life in the land, which of course is Israel. The moral implications certainly carry enough weight for us to become obedient to this mitzvah without question. In other words, the commandment first applies to those in the passage, um, the people gathered there at the foot of the mountain. They are the ones who will receive the promise given or tacked on to the um, commandment, honor your father and mother, so that, and then uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
the, the, the promise first applies to them. But we can still take the, um, the meat or the, the intent of the commandment for us today, even though we may not inherit the land if we um, honor our parents. That is to say, right now, I don't know if I'll ever get to the land because I've honored my parents. And there were many people down to the ages who have never made it to the land and yet did honor their parents. My point is this. Because we cannot make it to the land should not be a, a deterrent from us honoring our parents, you children. You should, in fact, honor your parents because, by virtue of being our parents, they are deserving of our honor and respect. Agreed? Agreed. Let's move on. Uh, mitzvah vav, which is commandment number five, uh, four, five, I'm sorry, commandment number six, verse 13, quote, do not murder, end quote. Um, I believe that this mitzvah is to be taken literally, do not murder. Now, some of your versions read, thou shalt not kill, but the um, Hebrew word uh, rendered suggests um, blatant disregard for human or animal life, and that is to be considered as murder in God's books. Now, that's not to say that war, self-defense, or accidental death or ritual slaughter uh, are prohibited. They are not to be counted in the same category as murder. I know that there are um, human rights um, types people who feel that the taking of any life for any purpose is wrong. And yet, that's not what we see God saying here. In fact, I'm prone to be skating on thin ice here if I just continue to... Um, push this matter. I don't want to have anyone misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. God is the author of life. That is true and that I hold to. That I believe. And as such, God alone has the right to um, dictate and determine when a person um, comes into this world and when a person will be taken out of this world. And yet, because God alone is the righteous judge, because we cannot make that decision, we must wait for God to give us that permission as it were, to um, carry out those actions that would take out another person's life. War, self-defense, actional death, ritual slaughter, um, death penalty, those types of things. Um, Any time a life is taken physically, um, God must be the determiner in that factor. Um, If it's accidental death, then God would not hold us responsible. And if it's war or self-defense, again, God wouldn't hold us responsible. But if we premeditatively take the life of another individual without the permission of God himself, then we have violated this commandment, we have murdered another individual, and the blood is on our hands. This mitzvah, however, can also be understood figuratively. We all know that murder does not just take place at the hands of of or does not take take place at the end of a knife or at the uh, at the reception of a bullet. Rather, we could use this figuratively when the topic is our everyday speech, right? The tongue can just as easily and effectively murder an individual as the sword can, and yet the um, prohibition would still be the same. Thou shalt not lash out against thy brother in murderous speech. Um, what Judaism refers to as lashon hara or um, evil speech or gossip. Um, this is a no-no. In fact, we know it's tr- it's true in other parts of the Torah where it is in fact prohibited. But let's go on. Mitzvah Zayin, which is commandment number seven, spans verse fourteen. Quote: Do not commit adultery. End quote. This mitzvah speaks first to the literal sexual act of joining to one who is not your spouse by marriage. 
Um, however, spiritually, it speaks of the act of following another god. So adultery can be both spiritual as well as physical. <clears throat> Israel, as such, being married to God, spiritually more so than anything else, um, would find herself violating this mitzvah uh, on the spiritual level over and over again, um, spiritually playing the harlot with other gods. But this commandment could be interpreted for those husbands and wives who've joined together physically uh, in the marriage covenant and God would come along and say you shall not commit adultery meaning um, once you have covenanted with one another you may not um, join yourself to someone who is not your spouse um, as such in my opinion it once again emphasizes the commandment given in the second um, one in commandment Aleph, uh, commandment bet above that is to say it is fitting that as the seventh mitzvah um, it's one that God said, you'll have no other gods before me. It's one that God, in the seventh one, says, um, do not commit adultery. In a, in a sense, uh, mitzvah bet and mitzvah zayin are linked together in that regard. Don't have other gods before me. Don't commit adultery. And um, it was this one that Israel had the hardest time keeping. The violation of this command severs a viable relationship between a husband and and his wife. When we cheat on one another, we are breaking down the marriage. We are um, we are vi not only violating the covenant with our partner, but we are actually undermining the strength of the covenant. Okay, Israel's future uh, future adultery would serve to have the same effect between she and her husband Hashem. It undermined the relationship to the point that God, in disgust, sent her off into. Um, uh, exile into other lands and eventually wrote her a bill of divorce but um, in his love and mercy reached back out to her. You can read that in the book of Jeremiah as well as the book of Hosea. Now we reach the um, eighth commandment uh, mitzvah chet which is verse 15 quote do not steal end quote um, it's self-explanatory if it doesn't belong to you then don't take it as your personal possession right? Do not rob another individual of his or her personal blessings. What God gives to someone else, don't take it to yourself without the permission of either God or the other individual. Now, if they want to lend it to you or if they want to share their blessings with you, that's fine. But if it's not yours, don't take it. Let's move on. Mitzvah Tate, which is the ninth commandment, verse number 16, quote, Do not give false evidence against your neighbor, end quote. Some versions read, do not lie. Um which we could also translate that do not be misleading. Um, this verse could be also understood in a, a few different ways. Uh, we could take it as just do not lie, do not um, give false witness, bear false witness against your neighbor, do not say things that are not true. Um, on a general sense, that would be a great application. You know, if my wife asked me, did you do the dishes like I asked you to do? And if in my mind I know that I didn't, I should not say to her, of course I did. That would be a lie. However, there's another way to understand this verse, and that's the way that Judaism has historically understood it. That is to be um, dealing with a courtroom situation. Um, in this sense, do not give false evidence would be uh, a courtroom setting where you maybe are called to take the witness stand and in favor of and, and in love for your neighbor, you are called to um, testify of his goodness or his, or, his, or his integrity. And instead, you, because of your malice towards your neighbor, you might give a false witness about your neighbor. You, you will lie on the jury stand, or I'm sorry, on the witness stand. 
And in that setting, we can see that establishing a system of justice and honesty has always been a priority with Hashem. Our God is a God of justice. And so we can just as easily interpret this verse as um, within the um, scope of giving false reports um, degrades that judicial system. And of course, Israel is big on justice as well. So, as such, our honesty one with another is to be a direct reflection of the pure character and honest nature of the unique God that we serve. Okay? Don't lie against one another in court. Don't lie against one another outside of court. It's pretty simple. Let's move on. The final mitzvah, mitzvah yud, is uh, commandment number 10, verse 17, quote, Do not covet your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor, end quote. This last one is actually, um, has bookends to it. Um, do not covet your neighbor's house is the first bookend, or the first parenthesis, and then everything within that, um, ending with anything that belongs to your neighbor, <clears throat> the Hebrew word there, anything, can be um, translated as everything, um, is the other bookend. So we have your neighbor's house or anything, and everything in the middle there is your neighbor's. So we have then your neighbor's wife, that would include obviously his children, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, um, those are your neighbor's possession. Now, interestingly, um, in my opinion, this could actually serve as a precursor to um, commandment number eight above, which says do not steal. How so? In a sense that if you don't harvest covetousness in your heart, then you won't be inclined to steal in the first place. If you don't look across the fence or look across the yard or across the street at your neighbor's possessions and pine after that which is not yours, that's the covetousness, then you would not disobey or violate um, commandment number 8 in verse 15 where it says do not steal. Stealing is the end result of the acting out of the covetousness in the first place. I see something, I want it, and I go after it even though it's not mine. So um, in a way, you could say the the, the, the um, verses are maybe out of order. And I'm not saying they really are, but um, in, in an application kind of way, they are. Um, in an effort to satisfy our lust, um, uh, we would covet that which is not ours. And Yeshua goes on to tell us in Matthew chapter 5 that it is the lust in our heart that leads us towards the um, committing of adultery itself. So again, we have a link back to thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, which was listed earlier. So we see that all of the commandments kind of work off of one another and tied into one another. They're not simply existing as separate commandments, but they rather, in fact, work and stem from, first and foremost, a relationship with God, and then secondly, a relationship to our fellow man. But in our verse here, the delineation of possession shows that from the greatest to the smallest of these things, that is to say, from his wife down to his um, donkey in the verse, um, your neighbor owns them. And you are not to desire them as your own. God will give you your own things. Don't want or long for your neighbor's things. Anything that belongs to your neighbor, okay? Let's draw some conclusions to the um, commentary today. My next section is entitled, Concluding Words. And the pun is intended. Concluding words. You get it? Okay. Alright, this concludes the giving of the ten words. The next verse explains... Um, in the passage, that all of the people experienced the thunder, the lightning, the sound of the ram's horn, which in Hebrew is the shofar, and the mountain smoking. It was a public event never before, um, never before occurred in the history of the world where all of the people met God 
simultaneously the way it's happened. And it was only mirrored by the um, Acts chapter 2 account, of which I'm going to speak about here in a moment. But other than that, no other religion can claim um, a public revelation from God the way that Judaism has um, claimed this public revelation here at the giving of Sinai. Christianity, if I could define it over and against Judaism here for a split second, even though I don't don't believe that Christianity is should be different from Judaism. But at any rate, if I were to use those simplistic terms, <clears throat> Christianity was birthed uh, in a similar event in Acts chapter 2, if you could um, imagine that. Um, but other than that, um, the giving of the Torah at Sinai is, is um, a very unique event. Again, let's turn to Rav Kook to lend an elucidation to this rather unusual phenomenon, the giving of the Torah. Quote, And all the people saw the sounds. Um, uh, Rav Kook uh, pulls out uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. All the people saw the sounds. End quote. Now, listen to what I just said. All the people saw the sounds? Something wrong with that verse there? The Midrash calls our attention to an amazing aspect of the Sinai revelation. That is, the Jewish people were, were able to see what is normally only heard. What does this mean? If, in fact, that's what the verse is saying. Is it a typo? Is it, is it a scribal error? At their source, uh, Rob Cook goes on to say that, at their source, sight and sound are united. And it is that only in our limited physical world, uh, that is, in this Alma de Peruda, this world of separation, um, are these phenomenon disconnected and detached. It is similar to our perception of uh, lightning and thunder, Rob Cook goes on to say, which become increasingly separated from one another as the observer is more distanced from the source of the um, the disturbance. If we are bound to the present, he goes on to challenge, um, and can view the universe only through the temporal material framework, then we will always perceive this divine. I'm sorry. We will always perceive this divide between sight and sound. We'll always have sight being seen and sound being heard. But in comparison, Rav Cook goes on to challenge us that the prophetic vision in Mount Sinai, however granted the people the unique perspective of standing near the source of creation, which of course is God. That's what he's trying to emphasize. Because God came down there in the sight of the people. Um, At that level, Rav Cook goes on to explain, they, the people, witnessed the underlying unity of the universe. Now he's getting mystical here, but 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 bear with me. They were capable of seeing sounds and hearing sights. And before we just dismiss Rav Cook's um, application or or me understanding there, we have to go back to what the text says. Did not it say? And all the people saw the sounds. Yes, it says that. So um, maybe Rav Cook is not off base there. He goes on to say, God's revelation at Sinai was registered by all their senses simultaneously as a single, undivided perception, end quote. And that's why I called it a um, sensual uh, experience, sensual meaning uh, capturing all of our senses there. I pulled that quote this time from Moadei Hariyah, page 491. As an interesting side note concerning this experience, I've noticed um, in my dealings with rabbinic writings that the rabbis figured that the giving of the Torah here occurred on the same date as the as-of-yet-future festival of 
Pentecost, or in Hebrew terms, Shavuot. Here's what I've explained in an earlier teaching concerning these two events. Now, I'm going to pull a quote from one of my own commentaries this time. This is taken from Shavuot, uh, page 10. Quote, Historically, the rabbis figure the giving of the Torah of Mount Sinai to have occurred on Shavuot, that is, in the third month after Am Yisrael came out of Egypt. And actually, I go on to say the exact date of the familiar encounter recorded for us in the book of Exodus is not explicitly stated. The chronological evidence, however, is convincing. If you if you work through the timing of the days that it says when they left Egypt, the date that they left Egypt, how, how long they traveled and how long it took for them to get to Sinai. At any rate, the author of the book of Acts, Luke, does testify of the precise timing of the festival of Shavuot, and he specifically relates this festival to the pouring out of the Ruach HaKodesh, that is, the Holy Spirit, unto the believers gathered there in Jerusalem. I go on to um, note in my other commentary, now the display of the tongues of fire in the presence of great sounds is reminiscent of the Sinai encounter. The rabbis also teach that when Hashem presented the Torah to the people, that it went forth in a multiple of fiery substance, inviting each individual Jew to accept the command to follow the whole of the Torah. The account in Acts describes the tongues of fire alighting themselves upon each person, as you'll recall. It says that cloven tongues. And sometimes I think we get the idea that it's like this little um, uh, tongue, uh, you know, like a little fire uh, brand or, or, or like a little, I don't know, a, 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 like, like a physical tongue, like what's in my mouth right now, setting on top of their head. But if you remember the word for tongue there is language. The, he, the Greek word would be um, glossolalia. And so we could say that the languages alighted on their heads. And if it's languages, then it's words. And if it's words, then it's reminiscent of the account here in Exodus, where, where it says that those, they saw the words. You get it? You see the connection? That's really neat. In the Sinai delivery of the Torah, the account says thunders and lightnings. It's rendered in the KJV. But the actual Hebrew word rendered lightnings is voices. It says thunders and voices. So it says um, they saw and heard the thunders and the voices, the kolot in the Hebrew. And again, when we're talking about voices, languages, this strengthens the connection to the Acts account where what in fact did they hear? They heard voices, end quote. All right, fascinating. I challenge you to go back and read my um, commentary on Shavuot during this time of the um, Torah reading of the giving of Sinai and look at the correlations between the two. Our parasha comes to a close with Hashem reaffirming the prohibition against idolatry and the fashioning of any type of inanimate object or shape of sort. In other words, do not make for yourselves gods of stone or silver or things like that. And again, as I mentioned, it's ironic that the very first communal sin... Well, actually, it's ironic that historically Israel would find herself violating the command against adultery by serving other gods over and over again. Equally ironic is that the very first communal sin of Israel, of the people, is that they would be making a golden calf, the very prohibition that God ends the giving of the ten words with. It's a shame. It's coming up in chapter 32 of Exodus where the golden calf takes place. So, if we go full circle, come back full circle and ask ourselves, when the people said, quote, everything the Lord has said we will do, instead of putting a period or an explanation mark on the end of that statement, it's really adequate to put a question mark on the end. Everything Adonai has said we will do? Oh, really? 
Yeah, it really is a premature statement because even though God said don't do this and don't do that and do this and do that, they turned around right away and read headlong into disobedience. Thanks be unto God that his mercy wins out over judgment and God extends mercy time and time again and does not wipe the people off the face of the earth. Rather, at the instruction of Moshe, he um, reconciles himself to his people and makes provision for their um, atonement. In fact, in the upcoming sacrifices, we see the the uh, picture of atonement uh, being um, spelled out for us. So, in saying that everything that Adonai has said we will do, soon we recognize the folly of this premature statement. The dynamic, however, is usually the same with us today. We cannot be too hard on Israel. How so? You and I aren't very much different. I say to myself, okay, Ariel, I'm not going to um, commit that 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 um, how do we say I'm not going to um, uh, commit that familiar sin I refuse to allow my eyes to go in that direction I refuse to allow my brain my mind to think on those thoughts or my mouth to utter those words and yet in a moment's notice in the heat of my um, passion or my uh, my anger or uh, in in the um, um, how do I call it uh, in the weakness of my lust, I, I find myself violating. And what can I say? In our overzealousness to do the Lord's bidding, you and I both find ourselves in the same boat sometimes. We usually end up committing the very act that we vow that we won't do. In fact, even the Apostle Paul seems to um, emphasize this in, I think it's in Romans chapter 7, where he says, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I do. And the things that I know I should be doing, those are the things that I neglect. So, it's the same for many of us today, this struggle for holiness. And yet it's not really a struggle if we surrender ourselves to the Spirit of God. In one sense, it's not a struggle, but in another sense, it is a struggle. It's because the old man within us is trying to gain control again of the seat and heart of our will. Just like the old man had control before Messiah moved in. But once we invited Jesus into our heart, the old man is dethroned and the new man takes his place on the uh, on on the uh, uh, on the inside, Jesus takes his place on the throne of our heart, and that's represented by the new man within us. And so there is a battle within us: the old man and the new man warring against each other. And so Israel find themselves, even though they're married to Hashem at this point, they're going to find themselves in a battle with their old and new man. The old man wants to go back to Egypt, and the new man wants to press on towards the land of promise. And so they fight this fight within themselves. And so we can relate. Our sin nature makes us prone to disobedience. And that's why we are required to crucify the old man. We must put away the old man. And the Torah of God serves to remind us of how short we fall when we try to measure up to God's righteousness under our own power. We cannot do it under our own strength. We must avail ourselves of the Spirit's inner working power if we are to lead lives that are pleasing to our husband, God. The Torah does not save us. It never was designed for that purpose. But it comes along to show us our shortcomings and it also comes along to instruct us into matters concerning right living. And while it's true that no one alive could ever have kept all of the commandments of God, all 613, as is supposedly outlined by the rabbis, it's also true, I want you to know, that Hashem never expected anyone to be able to. 
That's an ages-old misinterpretation and misconception of the Torah itself. It's not a document meant to be walked out perfectly. Otherwise, uh, in fact, if the Torah demanded perfection, we would have no need of the upcoming details concerning the sacrifices for sin. If God expects us to walk it out perfectly, then why do we have the sacrifices? No, God knows that we can't walk it out perfectly. Therefore, he anticipates our shortcomings and makes provision for them. The sacrifices come along in one way, not the only way, but in one way, to make provision for when we fail God. God is already saying in advance, look, I know you're going to try and I know you're going to fail. But in my love and mercy, I'm going to extend to you a mechanism whereby you can reconcile yourself back to me and me back to you. And therefore, the relationship is repaired. Isn't that wonderful? If we would begin to view the Torah in that light, we would begin to see that it's a good thing, not a bad thing. What the Torah expects from its followers is genuine trusting faithfulness to the giver of the Torah. Hashem, who is the Holy One of Israel. That's what the Torah expects. It does not expect perfection. It expects surrender to the God of the Torah. And today, this implies placing a person's trusting, complete faith in God's only and unique Son, Yeshua Himself. The Torah is not a document of law. In that sense, it's a document of grace. It contains within its pages the, the provisions and, um, um, how should we say, uh, the regulations governing our lives. It provides um, a way for us to reconcile to our God. It provides a way for us to be um, reconciled to our neighbor. It, it allows for us to treat our neighbor fairly and honestly. It describes the right uh, living and the lifestyle of a redeemed person, a person who is covenantally bound to God and who is covenantally bound to his neighbor. This is what the Torah brings for us. In that sense, it's not law. Now, I know it is the National Constitution of Israel, and I know that it also contains within it legal codes, legal strictures, um, case law, and things of the sort. We'll deal with those at, at a later time. However, overall, the Torah is a document of grace. Were it not for the Torah, we would not be in a position where we could encounter the righteousness of God because the Torah is written on the hearts of our new creation person. And as such, it serves to define our relationship with God. We need to understand that this is the true nature and function of the Torah. David Stern, translator of the Jewish Bible, the complete Jewish Bible, I'm going to end with a quote from him out of Romans chapter 10, verse 4, um, which reads in most Bibles something to the effect that Christ is the end of the law. But I don't believe that is the proper way that we should read that verse. Because after having realized now that the Torah comes along to point the way to Messiah, as well as um, lead us in matters of righteousness, we could very well translate the verse this way, quote, for the goal at which the Torah aims, is the Messiah, who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts. End quote. I think that's a better way to translate the passage. Wouldn't you agree? Let's close. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah temet, vechaye olam nata batochinu. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. 
Amen. Thank you, and have a wonderful Sabbath. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com or visit our website at graftedin.com that's graftedin.com